The Bible is an amazing book. It's actually a collection of 66 books written over a 1600-year period by 40 authors in three languages on three continents. Amazingly, these 66 books share a common storyline, a common theme, and a common message. But it was written a long time ago in a world very different from the one we live in now. So how do we know about the world as it was during the times of the Bible? The biblical text and other written records are the most important pieces of information we have about the history of ancient biblical peoples. But these records alone have left many unanswered questions. That's where archaeology comes in. Excavations of ancient sites across the land of the Bible, Israel, have provided us bits and pieces that give clues to the past and help us grasp a better understanding of the world as it was when the Bible was written. We sometimes find that the picture we get in our heads when we read a biblical passage isn't entirely as accurate as we thought, and we gain a deeper appreciation and better understanding of the context and background that forms the biblical narrative. Does modern archaeology confirm what we read in the Bible, or does it contradict it? How can archaeology help us become a better student of the Bible? And did they really find the Ark of the Covenant in Indiana Jones? And is it really in a CIA warehouse? to the Beards and Bible podcast, the podcast where we talk about Bible, beards, and everything in between. My name is Josh, and I'm joined as always by my wonderful co-host, Gabriel Joel Rutledge. Oh, you threw the middle name in. That was I, I did. It's intense. Yeah. Do you, yeah. Do you ever get called by your middle name anymore? No, I did in middle school. Um, I try to start it where, you know, I, w- I wanted to go by the middle name just to switch it up a little bit. Because, I, you know, when you have the name Gabe, there's all kinds of creative license with the name Gabe that people can take. And uh, mm-hmm. so I wanted to kind of eliminate the variables a little bit and go with Joel only. And it didn't really, I mean, after after like eighth grade, um, it never really stuck after that. And I just went back to Gabe. Yeah. So well, that's all, I, that's all good. I, I remember when I first met you in college, and you were trying to go by Gabriel Joel as your artist name. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that as well. Yeah, and that didn't, I don't know. I mean, it, it sounds cool. So, you know, I was thinking mm-hmm. maybe if you could just go by one of those, like, you know, Prince or, you know, trying yeah. to think of other one, Seal, other one name artists. This is embarrassing to say, but I was actually, I was actually signed to a little indie label somewhere in Minneapolis, I think. I and remember they, that. They request, they actually, they actually suggested that I use the name, the artist name, Gabriel Joel. And I was like, well, that's, that's fine. Yeah. So I did it. So, yeah. <laughs> and I think I, I successfully released two little EPs or albums with I them. I remember that, man. Those yeah. were good. Hey, I don't know if you remember this. I was thinking about this the other day. When we were both freshmen in college, mm-hmm. I, for a little bit, uh, did some sort of a weird internship at the college radio station. Yep. And I had like a little a slot where I could I had my own radio show and I could play whatever I wanted. And you came in the studio one night and you were my guest on my radio show. I remember that. Yeah, I remember um, uh, you asking me what my inspiration was for the name Gabriel <laughs> Joel. And I was like, too. well, I just can't. I can't just say like my the little label that I'm was assigned to. So I recommended it. But yeah, that was that was like our first beards and Bible podcast. That was golly, cool. full circle, almost twenty our, years ago. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. It comes around. Wow. Who would have thought that today? Yeah. Yeah, we started from the bottom. Now we here. 
hey, so there is a date on the calendar for my beard to be shaved. So I, you know, I want to give a full caveat that people can't see us out there. I don't know why I'm even explaining this, but um, if you need to kick me off the podcast when my beard regrows a little bit, I understand. But mm. they um, they raised my class raised two thousand dollars to donate towards Mercy Ships. And um, I, I told them the class that raises the most of the two thousand dollars gets to decide how to fashion my beard. And then I'll wear it that way for you know a few days or something like that. And and they had this crazy list of ideas how they're going to fashion my beard, you know, crazy, crazy things. And then they voted and they selected the pink and blue Ho Chi Minh. So, Whoa. yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I guess I'm going to have like a Ho Chi Minh, like long, wispy handlebar mustache and like a beard chin. And yeah. then they're going to they're going to dye it pink and blue. And I'm going to wear it that way for like three days and try to, to, to successfully teach something and be productive as uh, best <laughs> I can. But yes, it's going to be interesting. So maybe we can take a photo and post it on our Facebook page. Yes. I'm sure everybody would love that. Um, yeah. That's like really admirable that they raised that amount of money. That's, that's mm-hmm. amazing. It's yeah. Like 2000 bucks for mercy ships. And at the same time, the death of a beard is always a tragic thing. Yeah. I'm, I like to think that the good outweighs the bad in the situation, but I, I guess, I don't know. Anytime a beard dies, they're <laughs> an angel cries. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I was trying to think of, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where you're going with that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I was trying to turn a phrase from Wonderful Life. Every mm. time a beer dies, an angel cries. Doesn't quite work, does it? <laughs> you know, I used to do it when I was a teacher. I I would shave my beard into a Christmas mustache. And I would yeah. give my students the last day before Christmas break a Christmas mustache. Oh. But uh, this was right around the time when the movie Borat came out. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, 15 years ago, and so I had to stop doing it because everybody was like, <laughs> Mr. Brooker, you look like Borat. You ever seen Borat? And I was like, I'm not Borat, and they were like, But you look just like him, so I had mm. to stop because it was hurting my ego. <clears throat> but mm. pink and blue, aren't you men? I look forward to that, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I don't. I don't look forward to it. <laughs> it, is, it is what it is. It's gonna happen hey, Monday. Man, it's for the kids, it's for mercy ships. That's true, very yeah. true, yeah. Cool. Well, I'm really excited about our episode today. Today, we are talking about something called, I think I'm saying this right, Archi, Ar, Archa, Archaeologic? Archa, Archaeologia. I think that's how you say it. Mm. I think it's the science of studying the RK. I think that's what study. it is. The study yeah. of the RK. The study of the RK. Now we're talking about archaeology today, and uh, really excited about that. Really excited to talk about this discipline, and um, not just the theory behind it, but we're actually talking to a practitioner of this discipline today, and I'm really, really excited. Uh, our guest today, we've had on the podcast before. Her name is Amanda Hope Haley. She has a Bachelor of Arts in Religious Studies from Rhodes College. She is a Master of Theological Studies in Hebrew Scripture Interpretation from Harvard University. And her fourth book, The Red-Haired Archaeologist Digs Israel, was released by Harvest House Publishers on February 23rd. She also hosts the podcast, The Red-Haired Archaeologist, and she has contributed to the Voice Bible as a translator, writer, and editor. And Amanda and her husband live in Chattanooga, Tennessee, with their always entertaining basset hound, Copper. And she joins us now via satellite technology. Amanda, come in. Can you hear us? I can. Thanks okay. for inviting me to be with you guys. Absolutely. You 
you're not joining us via satellite, but you are joining us via Wi-Fi, I would think. Indeed. Indeed. And I don't have a beard, but um, if your listeners didn't catch it, I do have red hair. So there's mm. a there's a hair theme happening here tonight. Mm. Yeah. 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 Everyone Today, just, this morning, it's still dark outside. It's night, right? <laughs> it feels like night. <laughs> it does. And, and I feel like I feel like we should throw the caveat out as well that we are all, as we're recording this, there's lightning popping all around us, and we're experiencing some of the worst storms so far this year in the southeast. Mm-hmm. Yes, like, as too. we speak. So, yep. Praying that everyone stays safe during all that. But yeah, you might you might hear the clap of thunder in the in the background. Mm-hmm. Yes. Typically, it's one of my children interrupting the podcast, but this morning it could be a little bit different. It could be clap of thunder and a child interrupting the podcast. Mm. So, yeah. So, Amanda, you just wrote a new book, and Gabe and I have been perusing it and reading through it, and it is wonderful. Well, thank I'm, you. I'm holding up right here, but of course, our <laughs> listeners our listeners can't see it. But uh, it's called "The Red Haired Archaeologist Digs Israel." So, tell us about this book, and tell us. Uh, what was it that led you to writing it? Oh, well, it was sort of a happy, a lot of happy accidents that kind of came together. Um, obviously, archaeology is is my background. Um, Josh uh, just gave my long bio and said that I studied Hebrew scripture and interpretation, which is a really big mouthful. But really, when I was at Harvard, I just I studied biblical archaeology. Every class that I took uh, was focused on that. And I got to go dig at that time. And I mean, I fell in love with it. It's it's my first love professionally. And um, after after I graduated from from Harvard, I plan to just take a couple of years off before going back for my PhD. And as tends to happen, children don't stop going to school because something will keep you from going back. And um, so just life happened and I ended up getting into publishing instead and editing. Uh, I was involved in a Bible translation and started writing nonfiction Christian literature. And um, in Right as I was finishing up my last book, um, which you guys so graciously interviewed me for, yeah, um, I when I turned in the manuscript for that, I had a message from an old friend of mine. His name's David Capes, who um, at that point he was a dean of New Testament at Wheaton College. That was a new position for him, and he had been over in Israel checking out a new dig that they had just broken ground on at a place called Tel Shimron, and was talking with the director of that dig, a man named Daniel Master, who I knew from my time at Harvard and digging in Ashkelon. And for some reason, they remembered me. And I ended up getting invited to come out there and dig for the first time in 15 years. And um, yeah, so I took him up on it. And that was the genesis of the book. My publisher was really excited about it. They encouraged me to go do it. And um, yeah, the the book evolved and here it is. Wow. <laughs> Really cool. And and I think what's so cool is, you know, when you talk about archaeology, most people in their, their brains have a picture of somebody with the, you know, the tan hat and the cargo shorts and hiking boots with socks that are not like actual running socks. They're like socks that come up and then you cuff mm-hmm. them down. I don't know why that's what I have in my head when I have an archaeology. They, their socks are just very specific. Mm-hmm. Uh but what I'm trying to say is we have an, an imagination of archaeology, but what's so cool about the book is to see what that actually looks like in real time. Yeah. That th- these are not fictional people. These are <laughs> real life uh, scholars that are going and playing in the dirt and looking for stuff. 
Mm-hmm. Or not necessarily looking yeah. for stuff because you specify between treasure hunting and archaeology. Give us kind of the distinction between those two things. I do. I think a lot of where your image comes from is probably just pop culture. Mm-hmm. And I trace it back to you know, Indiana Jones, of course, or even right. further back than that, like eight, late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, we have... Like, think about the old like black and white movie, The Mummy, mm-hmm. you know, and you have these these British wealthy landed gentry, you know, going and digging in in Egypt or um, you know in the Middle East somewhere. And they're all, you know, dressed a particular way and they manage to keep their very, very white clothes, very, very clean, which is totally <laughs> bizarre. Um, but I, that that informs, I think, what we think of when we picture archaeology. So it's either you know, very like scholarly, gentlemanly, or it is swashbuckling, you know, running away from mystical forces or Nazis, you know, or something like that. And so that's real. That part's real, at least. Absolutely. Definitely. Yes. No, 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 no. (laughs) (laughs) So that that is in a way that's great because I think that puts archaeology on people's radar because mm-hmm. it seems like it's fun and it's interesting. But the flip side of that coin is people think that archaeology is all about going out there and finding that one really important thing. Like, let's go find Noah's Ark. Let's go find the Ark of the Covenant. Let's go find the Cup of Christ. Um, you know, just right. think of something that's in the Bible that you want to see with your own eyes. Um the impression that we get thanks to pop culture is that's what archaeologists are doing, just rampaging across countries trying to find one particular item. And um, that's just not reality. (laughs) Archaeology is a science at its core. Uh, It's a branch of anthropology. And like most other sciences, you know, like, like we're all taught in elementary and middle school, it's really important to follow a scientific process and to enter into the practice doing your best not to have preconceived notions, um, trying not to go there looking for one thing in particular or trying to prove one thing in particular, but digging and um, doing the research, finding out what comes out of the ground and then analyzing it on the back end. Yeah. Wow. That's really cool. I I guess I never really thought of it as um, maybe this just speaks to my lack of uh, knowledge when it comes to this, but never really thought of it as a science. I would have thought of it as more related to history than science, but it kind of seems like it's a the science of history. Is that is that kind of a, a, a way. way to put it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an ology, you know, I mean, it's definitely more to the liberal arts side, you know, of right. sciences in a way it's not a hard, it's not a hard science. Um, gotcha. And although, I mean, one thing I learned, especially when I was there in 2019, everything was closed in 2020, obviously. Mm -hmm. So the last digs that were operating were in 2019. And um, one thing I learned is in the intervening 15 years between when I've been in Ashkelon and when I was back at Shimron, um, the science part of it has advanced incredibly. And I mean, you have microbiologists who are out there taking scrapings and taking things back to their labs to figure things out. And, And you've name your scientist zoologists i mean people who biologists looking at bones looking at um everything the botanists what kind of plants were grown here um gps is super involved um everything is everything is now run by computers and satellites literally Mm -hmm. we have satellite positioning happening there so the science so hard science has come into archaeology a lot i think it has really been beneficial in making it making it more exact in a lot of ways right, right. and and that's a good thing yeah. um but 
there's always there's always going to be the the soft science side of it because what comes out of the ground has to be interpreted. And yeah. so you need to know who's doing the interpreting, what their right. biases are. Um, and it's it's incumbent upon that person or those those people to be as honest as possible um, about where they're coming from and you know what their blinders might be when they're looking at an arch- art artifact or looking sure. at a timeline or something like that. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Just the fact that um, biases probably are, are going to lead people to see things that may not be in there. Right? Definitely. And, and if you, yeah. you you're going to a site to try to prove something or try to disprove something, yeah. chances are you're going to find what it is you're looking for just on the basis of human nature, right? It's the whole eisegesis versus exegesis, right? You Ab- start with absolutely. a premise and then go digging. Um, so... It seems like this discipline of archaeology is kind of the thing that is the equalizer that if it's done well, it can kind of cut through biases. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit about that. Like, what's the significance of it? And, and why is this so important for us as as Bible students, as Bible scholars, and even as people of faith, as, as believers and followers of Jesus? Um, so I, I think there is an impression out there in the world that the role of biblical archaeology is to prove the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, that's definitely the way it started, honestly. Um, a guy named William uh, Petrie, Sir Petrie, uh, you know, went out is there. Is he the and inventor of the Petri dish? I don't think so. Oh, okay. I don't know. Maybe I think it. Maybe it was like I don't I know. Bet, his uncle I, or I bet. I bet he was a really good cook, <laughs> and every time he would cook something, people would be like, "Hmm, Petrie, good dish." This is a good Petri dish. And he'd be like, ha ha, get out of here. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. I'm sorry. Maybe Keep, so. No, 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 that's fine. <laughs> um, but the the people who really started modern archaeology, um, so, you know, that guy, <laughs> um, they, there was a certain treasure hunting aspect to what they were doing. The, the discipline had not developed yet to a point where it was anything close to scientific and they they were going out into the world and looking for objects with the ultimate goal of proving the bible so that's where biblical archaeology started and um i think that is something that the discipline has spent the last you know more than 100 years trying to work its way out of because Personally, as a Christian, I don't think it's incumbent upon anyone, any one of us to have to prove that the Bible is correct. Hmm. And um, it makes me sad when people, you know, look at what's coming out of the ground and look at archaeology. And I mean, and their first question is, well, does it prove that the Bible is true? It's like, well, that's not even a question we need to be asking if you're a person of faith. Scripture comes from God. What archaeology is there for, what is so awesome about it and why I love it, is that it can contextualize Scripture for us. It can make it more real. Um, It helps us to see things that are described in Scripture that we otherwise would have to imagine. And when we as 21st century Americans imagine some words that are in the Bible, we're doing it from where we are in our own context. Um, when we need to actually know a little bit about the ancient world and where these things came from in order to, first off, know what things looked like historically, but then to also better understand just um, everything in the Bible that is, you know, figurative, um, sure. that sort of thing. Yeah. So it's, it, it's all- it is, it is a tool for bringing scripture to life for us so that we can understand it better in context. It is not there to prove or disprove God. Amanda, yeah. um, 
I was wondering with the establishment of the state of Israel, mm-hmm. just in terms of like volume of archaeological digs and um, excavations that are going on, has there been an increase? And if so, how much since, you know, 1948 and Israel's founding? Increase in... in... In just the amount of amount of archaeological evidence pulled out of the ground. Um, yes, I think there has. But um, so, so anything that comes out of the ground in Israel is the property of Israel first and foremost. Yeah. And um, the state of Israel enters into these agreements with universities, with um, nonprofits, with whoever is funding funding digs and whoever's running the digs. And so the state owns everything. They have oversight of everything. Everything yeah. that comes out of the ground first goes into their warehouses. But then it is the right and the responsibility of the scholars to 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 write to write it's sure. the, the r-i-g-h-t for them to w-r-i-t-e um, about what comes out of the ground and yeah. so there's a lot out there that has been discovered and that is in warehouses but it, that is yet to be written about um and actually the dead sea scrolls are a really excellent example of this yeah um and in fact as as recently as tuesday you guys may have heard israel made a huge announcement yeah. that unbeknownst to the world as far as i know since 2017 the state of israel put together a group of archaeologists and they had them working and going back into the caves of Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found and pulling artifacts out. And so I think maybe that is evidence that Israel's even more involved in archaeology than maybe the wider world was aware of. Um, and they, since they had this press conference on Tuesday, they have committed to getting even more involved um, in archaeology and pulling artifacts out, studying them, preserving them, um, and and that sort of thing. So, yeah. Uh, but but you know we've had to wait. Some of that stuff came out of the ground in 2017. We have to wait for them to announce. We have to wait for people to write about it. And in the case of the Dead Sea Scrolls prior to Tuesday, I mean they were found in the late 1940s, um, into the 50s and 60s to some degree, but they were not actually largely published about until the 1990s. And so for 50 years, you know, the state of Israel was just sitting on this volume of Mm. really, really awesome information that, you know, Christians and Jews, people of faith, historians, the world was waiting with bated breath to know about. And, um, you know, we, we, we didn't, we didn't know until, until scholars were able to, to get the information out there. So the answer to your question is yes, probably it's increased, but we can't know for sure until publications come out and they can be delayed by literally decades sometimes. Gosh, that's gotta be so frustrating. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's a tough balance. I mean, everybody has to work together. You're looking at governmental organizations, private citizens, donors, universities, um, and you know, everybody has everybody has a share in the game and everybody has to work together. And it's good, I think it's good that there's all this collaboration happening because the more people who are involved on something like that, the more likely you are to be able to identify and pull biases out of interpretations. Yeah. You know, on one hand, it's like that stuff is safe, you know, that Mm -hmm. people aren't going to come along and sell that into, you know, the antiquities market or something like that. Right. But yeah, you're right. You have to, it seems like you have to go through a lot of hoops to try to have access to it and study it. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, in, in the Vatican, I believe is guilty of the same thing. I remember hearing in school that like, especially with manuscripts. I took I took some courses in um, non-canonical gospels and my professor there was talking about how every, you know, 10 years or so some scholar will come out and write this amazing paper about this discovered, you know, um, this discovered manuscript of some of the gospel 
you've never heard of. And he discovered it in the Vatican. And it's just been mm. sitting in the Vatican for four, five, six hundred years. Yeah. Um, but there's just so much in there that literally the stuff that has been saved and preserved, we don't even know. <laughs> we, we don't even know that it's there. It needs to be rediscovered even wow. in in the safety mm. of our warehouses. Wow. So what was your first experience on an archaeological dig? Like where was it and why that site in particular? I guess one thing I've, I was thinking just through thinking this, like, how do you pick a site? Like, is it just kind of like, okay, over there, that looks like there's probably something there. Like, let's, let's try that. Um, and, and like your first, your first try at it, your first stab at it, was it like a success? And how do you actually judge what makes an archeological dig a success? So several questions in there. Yes, um, my, that, no, no, it's fine. My first dig was at Ashkelon which is uh, one of the five capital cities of, of the Philistine nation. It is right on the Mediterranean. I would say personally, it was an incredible success because <laughs> wow. I had a wonderful time. And it cemented for me, you know, a love of archaeology. Um, but I... I I certainly didn't find the site. Uh, it had been found many, many years before. So the, the dig at Ashkelon went for uh, roughly 40 years. Wow. Um, so, and, and one scholar was in charge of it, you know, basically the whole time. Um, but the, the way sites are found in Israel, first off, there are so many in Israel that, I mean, you can basically look at the horizon and, you know, if you see like a little bump in the ground that looks sort of out of place, odds are that's a tell. Um, uh, and that is evidence of an ancient civilization that has been you know, basically covered over by earth. And mm -hmm. so, um, that that's first, you know, just look out there on the horizon. If you see a bump, like, mm, what could that be? So once you identify the bump and where it is, then you can, you know, look at what surrounds it as far as, um, land masses and, and cities and things like that. And, and just, you know, think, okay, is it likely that this is a city? Ancient people would have built cities near, near waterways, especially in, in the Near East. Um, they needed water because a lot of Israel's arid. Um, is it, you know, on a, a trade route that we know was there in antiquity? Is it, um, is it in a higher elevation? Would it be a good place for a city? Would these people have built here thinking, I can see my enemies coming from miles around? You know, the archaeologist can ask himself these kinds of questions and get an idea. Like, is that, is that just a natural bump or is that something that was man-made over, over centuries or millennia? And once the scholar has an idea that, yeah, I think that's probably an ancient city. We should check it out. At that point, um, ground penetrating radar now comes into it and they can take technology and, you know, see literally what is below the surface there are, you know, are there objects down there? Um, get an idea of if it is a, a fruitful site and, if the answer there is yes, then the next step is bringing in the large equipment, you know, bulldozer, basically, and taking a chunk out of the side of the tell and, you know, looking and seeing, okay, what kind of strata do we have here? Is there evidence of just one city being built here? Or is there evidence of many, many cities over time? Can we see lines in the dirt that indicate oh, there was a destruction layer here, or, uh, you know, oh, look, th this is wavy. Maybe there were earthquakes that took this place down. Try to get as much information um, 
before you start raising money, bringing in all the volunteers, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Because right. um, as a friend of mine likes to say, archaeology is one expensive hobby. It's <laughs> very, very expensive. Yeah. <laughs> so, and that's probably um, a very painstaking process then after the initial part of it goes, right? I mean, after, yeah. you know, the, the you bring in the backhoe or whatever and, you know, mm -hmm. that part happens, then the next part yeah. is probably just, I would imagine, yeah. very slow, very tedious yeah. So the the place that I was at in 2019, um, Tel Shimron, actually went through this process recently. Daniel Master, who was in charge of that, was at, he was one of the directors of Ashkelon. And when Ashkelon closed, um, some people asked him, if you could dig anywhere, where would it be? And of course, any archaeologist would love to get their hands on a site that's never been dug before, because uh, then you're you're starting from scratch. And I mean, you know, wow, how exciting. Most of the big sites in Israel, you know, the famous places you hear about in the Bible, they've been tapped already. Doesn't mean they've right. been fully excavated. Like you go to Megiddo today, and it is a beautiful park that has been largely restored. Uh, visitors can go there. There's a great visitor center. Um, that has questionable information. That's another story. Um, but there's also active excavating going on there at the same time. I mean, w when I visited there with my family in 2019, people were working on it under the sunshades, just in different parts of the tell. So um, anyway, it's, it's a coup for someone to be able to find a tell and dig there. And Shimron it's mentioned a few times in the Bible, just in passing, but it is not a famous place. You say that name, most people are going to kind of glaze over. like. Eh. Um, but it was, uh, it turns out it's, re it was a really important trade destination. It was large. It has constant evidence of occupation from the Calcolithic era all the way to literally modern times. Wow. Um, and so it's, yeah, I mean, that, 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 that's the dream. <laughs> that's the dream. <laughs> yeah. So when you find something, right? Mm -hmm. So somebody's digging, they're, they're going through. And I would imagine like in my head, it's, you know, a shovel hits a pink and somebody goes, oh, I've found it. And they pick it up and hold it up. And it's a fully intact artifact and the dramatic music plays and, you know, doo -doo -doo, and they hold it up and it's, you know, that's exactly what it's like, by the way. And you better not mm -hmm. tell me otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so <laughs> what the, what do people do with it in the sense of how can that particular archaeological find help someone better understand the history of Israel? Like, what is it about that one particular thing? Like, if it's an ancient hairbrush or if it's a, you know, lampstand or whatever, like, what is it that we can actually use that for? Like, what's the use of that? Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Um, so this is where maybe some people will find out, like, I, I, I'm – pulling back the cover in archaeology and some people will be sad that <laughs> you, you first off it's really rare to find something completely intact like that nah. when you do it's fantastic oftentimes um those intact objects are found in a ritual type context so um especially when you're talking about uh, pagan cultures, you'll have a burial and oftentimes that burial, those people would have been buried with items with literally lamps. You mentioned that. You, you wrote about that in your book. 
right? I that did, was, a little like bit. It's Philistine ritual, apparently. They yeah, were, yeah, so that wasn't a burial. That was something they call a foundation deposit. And it's the one time I've gotten to excavate something that actually was intact when it came out of the ground. Wow. Um, usually when you, when you get out there and you're a volunteer on your first day, you know, you're, you're digging, you're working with your trowel, you're brushing dust off of dust, and you find your first piece of pottery. And it's the most exciting thing in the world. And you think <laughs> to yourself, no one has seen this amazing piece of pottery in 4,000 years, you know, or whatever, depending on wherever you're working. And it's awesome. And you put it in the bucket and then you find another one and another one and another one. And by the end of the day, you found, I don't know, a hundred of these things. And then you realize that at the end of the day, you have to wash and dry and mark and read every single one of those pieces. And so by day two, you're like, oh man, it's another stinking piece of pottery. <laughs> it's a broken piece of pottery. And I, it, it obviously doesn't go with anything, but you know, I have to catalog this. So what starts off really, really awesome gets less so because mm. there is so much pottery because what you are digging up is 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 evidence of people's lives. And right. so you're working in their homes. You're digging up their cooking pots. You're you know broken broken pottery sherds were used as paper to some degree, you know, at the time. I mean, that pottery was just sort of used, you know, for everything. And so you're digging up the really mundane parts. Um you know, you're you're finding ovens. Um, I had the honor um, in 2019 of working in an area that they tested. And apparently I had been digging in a latrine for two weeks and I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this stuff happens. Wow. But what does that mean? So if, if you're the person digging, you're obviously getting to know these ancient people really, really well. And I would um, say so if you're digging around in their latrine. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Really it's kind well. of embarrassing. I like to think, although <laughs> no one would agree with me on this, what I told myself was maybe they were tanning leather here. Like maybe this mm. was like a really functional space. Mm -hmm. And no, no, no one would no one would agree with me on that. But <laughs> that that's what I told myself. <laughs> you know. So but you're, you know, you're 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 digging up their houses, you're finding the foundations of their homes and their walls, and you're seeing how they live. And right there in that moment, those little things may not mean that much, but when you put them all together, it gives you a picture of the ancient world and it changes things. And I think a, a great example of that and how the mundane can impact what we, how we interpret the Bible is uh, just the story of Jesus being born in a manger and I know tradition and, you know, my, my world told me that Jesus was born out in a barn somewhere in a field. Hmm. Um, well, thanks to archaeology, you know, we understand that, you know, houses had four rooms. They were square. On the bottom is, you know, where the cooking layers were. That's where all of the animals lived. That's where a manger would have been, you know, inside the city of Bethlehem. And, you know, there was no room in the inn. Well, there was no room upstairs, you know, for them to go and sleep because people slept upstairs. When, when you see the archaeology, it, and then you go back and you read the scripture, suddenly the words you're reading have a different meaning. Um, and it, it, it can change the, the way you understand scripture. And instead of, you know, Jesus being literally put out to pasture for his birth, you know, it, 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 it was a different scenario. You know, he was, you know, there in the city of Bethlehem and there was no room in these homes where, you know, Jews were offering hospitality to each other because everybody had flooded the space um, because of the census mm -hmm. and all of this. And so it wasn't this, you know, 
Chaucer innkeeper figure saying, no, this unmarried pregnant woman cannot come in here and have her child, which is the way I always pictured it. No, no I mean, instead, it was a very you know, practical situation. He was more likely you know, born among the animals and in, in you know, the underside of the house. You know, there was no snow, most likely. What? You know, <laughs> I know. So you're <laughs> telling me it wasn't, really it, wasn't like a, <laughs> it wasn't like an eight by ten shed that was outside in the snow. Mm hmm. Uh, covered in Spanish moss. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Covered in Spanish <laughs> moss in on top. And yeah, yeah. definitely. And so you're little, telling like, me there wasn't a plastic there. wise man right next to no, Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, funny story about uh, mangers. When I was in 10th grade, we, my brother and I snuck out in the middle of the night and stole all the elements of my 10th grade biology teacher's manger <laughs> and transplanted them. <laughs> we transplanted them to another teacher's front yard just to kind of see what would happen, you know, just to see how that would play out. And not a word was ever mentioned about it. So we like watched them and interacting like it's just like they never mentioned anything about <laughs> the fact that they one person has the other person's all their manger elements, you know. So anyways. Wow. You and your you and your brother, like, man, that's that's some bold moves. Like yeah. 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 Messing with Jesus's uh, little baby Jesus's uh, crib, man. Messing with his yeah. nursery. That's yeah, I'm just trying to set the history straight, you know. I'm just <laughs> you knew back then. You knew that did, wasn't yeah. biblical. Yeah. But, but twenty years later, doesn't that make you insane? Like they had to have noticed. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> man, they got the last laugh. I mean, I'm going to be thinking about this later on today. Yeah. <laughs> Why didn't you say something? Did they, yeah. Did they ever sit down in the break room together and be like, hey, hey, by the way, I noticed um, all of your manger elements are in my front yard. I just wanted to let you know I did not do that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. So, Amanda, you talk in their book about digging near the Mediterranean and mm -hmm. the Negev and the caves near the Dead Sea, near Galilee. Is is there any, and you, you briefly mentioned this earlier, but is there any site, and just curious, that is like untapped, largely unexplored, hasn't really been excavated, that scholars are like chomping at the bits to get in there and go, hey, what could be in that? Or does it seem like most of it's kind of been excavated at this point? Are we talking Israel? Yes. I mean, in Israel, largely it's known. Israel's, I mean... Land-wise, not a huge country. Mm -hmm. um, and, I mean, even even in the disputed territories, um, the West Bank, um, Israel has, you know, I mean, has gotten in there and been able to do some work. One place people probably are chomping at the bit is Gaza. Mm. Um, the Philistine city of Gaza. I mean, it is just inaccessible. And then, um, I mean, of, of course, it is you know, physically separated off by, by the military and walls and all of that. But then also it has such a high population um, density that the, I mean, there's a struggle within Gaza City for for land, for buildings, all that kind of stuff. And so right. the reports that you get coming out of Gaza are that when things are found, you know, hopefully well-meaning citizens are, you know, taking them and doing their best to preserve them. But I mean, archaeologists can't get in there because I mean, a trial would be considered a weapon. Right. Um, it's absolutely impossible. And sadly, what is there is probably getting destroyed because Gazan citizens need places to live and, you know, ways to exist there. And so the, the, uh, the needs of the current citizens are, are outweighing the, the desires of, of historians and archaeologists, you know, to get in there and, and, and investigate the Philistine capital city. Wow. So, so I learned from your book that that would be one of the Philistine cities, right? Was there five yeah. Philistine yes. cities? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. 
Gaza. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that would be really fascinating to get and explore because you did talk about in your book how, um, you know, was there a race of giants? And I think you did a really good job um, explaining so far to date, there has not been any skeletons mm-hmm. that are of no- abnormal size or anything like that. But right. um, I thought you did a really good job in your chapter about David and Goliath and following the race of giants down and how you talked about the Septuagint is, you know, the Septuagint just describes Goliath as what, like six and a half feet tall or something like that? Yeah, like, like just under seven, something like that. I think I looked it up and he like literally is Gronk's size, according yeah. to Steve, Gronkowski, like um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, whatever the dimensions are in the Septuagint, it's Gronk like, yeah. Gronk is Goliath. <laughs> literally, right? <laughs> I would kind of like to see that, I got to be yeah. honest. <laughs> oh, come at me, bro. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah, but the Masoretic text describes Goliath as the giant, you know, we all picture him. Right. But I like how you, you talked about how, you know, we can get hung up on that. Mm-hmm. Um, what was he a giant? Was he not a giant? But at the end of that section, you said, but really the story was a, just an example of, of how God uses, um, people you would least expect and he defies expectations. Yes. Um, but that's one of the aspects I really liked about your book is that you would go through kind of a nitty gritty of the history and the, um, you know, there'd be a, a dash of a, of adventure mix in there, but then you'd ha- it seems like you had kind of a um, a neat moral application, a neat spiritual application that we can take from from the reading of your book. Thank you. Yeah. I I like to say that I I am a, I am a Christian, and I like to say that I kind of lead with that. Um, in archaeology, you know, it's so important to try to get beyond your biases. And for me, being a Christian is a huge bias. Sure. I, mm-hmm. I am going to look at scripture. And I mean, I fully believe that it is the word of God. Um, but, you know, I mean, I've, I've also I've also studied archaeology and history and I've been in the field. And um, for me, I, that the, the two don't have to be in competition. And that particular passage that you mentioned about um about Goliath and the whole idea of giants and stuff, a, a few people have have written reviews and it's like they can't get past that part of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, because what I see is, you know, archaeology, we, we haven't found giants. There's nothing out there that is confirming, you know, that we as a society say that Goliath was a giant. When you actually, if you go back and you read the passage, nowhere in the Bible is Goliath himself actually described as a giant. Mm-hmm. And yeah. according to the Septuagint, I mean, he was like big, strong dude. I mean, this is this is a an entire country of warriors. I mean, compare them to the Huns if you want. If maybe you know that's something that's a little easier, a little more recent for people to be able to to imagine. I mean, these were great, big, powerful, strong people who were a serious threat to the land of Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Bible doesn't actually literally call. Goliath the giant, but our society has seized upon that in such a way that for me to point that out and be like, hey, you guys, like, go back and look at your scripture again. That word's not actually used there. Um, that's that is difficult, I think, for a lot of Christians who were were raised with the story of little scrawny weakling David, you know, beating the big strong giant. It's right. it, really society has his tainted what the Bible says. And sometimes we can miss, I think, what the actual message of scripture is because we've had 2000 plus years of, you know, people heaping upon these stories. And, um, you know, archaeology can actually be a great tool to pull back some of that. Sure. You, you talked about that in your book, Mary Magdalene did not wear blue eyeshadow, kind of that whole idea of we bring into the text this yeah. Understanding that is connected with our, you know, 
background or mm-hmm. you know whatever denominational flavor that we we grew up in and so we read it and we go well yeah of course she was a prostitute mary magdalene or of course you know david was nine years old and goliath was 30 feet tall of course right and and then if you actually go back and you read the scripture you go yeah maybe not so do you think that um modern modern archaeology confirms what people find in their bible or does it contradict what we read in our bible or does it reshape what we read in our Bible. Speak to that for just a little bit. I um, I think that archaeology is all about contextualizing what is in the Bible. And the, the answer to, to your question is going to depend on the person because there are people out there um, who have their, their opinions of what they think that the Bible says. And there are going to be things that come out of the ground archaeologically that disagree with that. For instance, on Tuesday, um, when uh, this awesome report about the Dead Sea Scrolls came out from Israel, they have also revealed that they found a 10,500-year-old basket. And I did a lot of reading on this. um, And, you know, of course, the comments start flying. And the first thing that comes out is, well, that has to be wrong. These people are heathens. They don't believe in God because the earth is only 6,000 years old. Mm. Um, and so they come to the Bible, you know, with this idea and with this belief that the, the earth is only 6,000 years old. And so when something comes out of the ground that has tested older than that, and I happen to have actually met the woman who did the testing on it. Um, I actually know these people. <laughs> um, but you know, when something like that comes out and that disagrees with their understanding of the Bible or their interpretation of the Bible, then that can create this existential crisis in the individual. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I would say that when when that basket or something comes out of the ground, no, it, it for me, it doesn't disagree with scripture. Um, it may cause us to go back in and reevaluate and consider and question, why does this concrete thing that I can look at disagree with what I've always been told or what I've always mm-hmm. thought about what the Bible says? And that is an opportunity for us to interact with scripture. And I mean, right. here in a year or so or more or less, we may find out that that 10,000-year-old basket, a mistake was made, and actually it's only 3,000 years old. I don't know. But in this space, this is an opportunity for us to look at, you know, what what scientists are telling us and what the Bible says and and dive into it mm-hmm. and play around with it and ask questions and and get to know God better. And God wants us interacting with scripture. He didn't give us scripture in like this really clear cut, you know, here are golden tablets. I am sitting this here for you. This is absolutely <laughs> perfect. It, it wasn't like that. I mean, it's like you said earlier, it, it's 66 books. It was written over, you know, over a thousand years with all these multiple authors. And it, it came to us in a very indirect sort of way. Right. And I believe that's part of the design. Hmm. Um, because if because God wants us interacting and asking questions, because that's how we get to know him better. And yeah. we're here for that relationship. That's why he created us, is to have that relationship with him. Yeah. Well, what are some of the more significant discoveries that have reshaped maybe some of your understandings of how things were during biblical times? And is there any one particular archaeological find that you've discovered or you read about or maybe you've pulled out from the ground fully intact while the dramatic music plays and gone, Eureka! I've never... (laughs) I've never seen it this way before, but is is there something that has kind of reshaped how you've always thought about it? Really early on, because I was digging at Ashkelon, um, a lot of the finds that were discovered there 
I think impact me more because I have sort of a personal connection to them. And there's a couple. One was discovered long before I dug there. And that is, um, they found this little silver calf that that came out of the ground. And the silver calf would have been molded and created right around the time that Moses and the Israelites were, were wandering in the region. Um, and so that little guy coming out and him being a little guy, like he, he would fit you know, in the palm of my hand, basically. It's really, really cute. Look it up. <laughs> but he, uh, actually he was bronze with like a silver overlay. And so in certain light, he even kind of looks a little bit golden, um, because of the, the, the metals that are there, but he, um, the Philistines were worshiping him, um, as a different kind of God, but seeing him, seeing his size, and then going back and rereading that account of Aaron and the creation of the golden calf, that for me changes how everything reads. Because up until learning about this little guy, I always pictured like the Cecil B. DeMille golden calf, you know, m- massive creature right, with, right. you know, jewels everywhere and, you know, women in bikinis writhing on it. And, you know, <laughs> you've, you've seen the scene. You know, it's very like salacious for 1956. Yes, you know? yes. And um, so, I mean, that's like. For me, the story had always been about, you know, Aaron, these people are heathens, they're idiots, you know, they're following the one true God and they turn around and they create for themselves this massive idol and they turn their back on him and all this. Well, seeing what was in the region at the time and understanding the 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 situ- situations that they came out of, the kinds of the ways that the gods were worshipped, um, you know, gods were gods were put on a perch of an animal. Um, So a a god, an unseen god, for instance, would have been worshipped by other cultures by, you know, them having a calf, let's say, Mm. and the worshiper imagining the god over that. And knowing that bit of context and seeing this and then reading the scripture again and realizing that these people have been following Moses. Moses has been gone up on Mount Sinai for a really, really long time. There's this hive mind operating going, where's Moses? Where's God? Have we been abandoned? Did we make a mistake? Should we turn around and go back? Yeah, sure, we hated Egypt, but it was a known quantity. Can we do something to get God back here? Hmm. Um, and suddenly, re- and, and so the solution is, well, you know, the people around us have calves, and that's what they used to call down their gods. You know, why don't we give this a try? Right. Just knowing that historical context, it changes the way maybe that that we read what's happening there. And suddenly Aaron becomes an incredibly sympathetic figure. He's right. he's not trying to turn his back on God and worship something of his own creation. You know, maybe he maybe he is trying to call God back down to them from the mountain. Now, that is still wrong. <laughs> I, I, I am not but justifying it, anything. But I think that what's interesting did. is is it almost it almost creates um, when we understand a background like that, we can almost see the temptation that they encountered is probably one very similar to the temptation that we encounter being surrounded by pagan idols, right? Absolutely. So yes. when, when you see it as like, you know, look at these dumb Israelites in the middle of the desert. They just want to make yeah. themselves a, a, you know, <laughs> a mm-hmm. God out of gold, right? Yeah. We're kind of like, well, I would never be tempted to do that. I'm so exactly. much better than them, right? Mm-hmm. I know so much better. I'm smarter. Right. But when we understand maybe a bit of the context and a bit of the surroundings, we understand, man, that temptation is still existent in the world we yeah. live in today, just maybe in a different form. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah. In Exodus, Exodus 32.5, you know, I, I learned this just a few years ago. 
um, and they took it and they fashioned this, you know, Aaron directs them to take all their earrings and everything. And, and he fashions it. He says, uh, with an engraving tool, he fashioned it into a molten calf. And they said, these, O Israel, are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before the calf and he proclaimed, tomorrow shall be a feast too. And there he uses Yudhevav, he uses the name of the creator. So in other words, they weren't, tr- they weren't misdirecting their worship to like one of the Egyptian gods or anything like that. They were directing their worship through this calf to the one true God that brought them out of the land of Egypt. Mm-hmm. So it was like they they were worshiping the right God, but in the wrong way. So yeah. it, in a way it reveals to me kind of, kind of another dimension of who God is and his expectation of worship from us that yeah. you may have the best intentions in mind, mm-hmm. but I don't want to be, wor- I want, there's a, it's a certain protocol mm-hmm. to worshiping me and that does not include making graven images. Um, like you did, Amanda, you did a great, great job talking that. I think it was on page, um, I've got it here open, page 42 of your book. Um, you talked about how, um, you know, in the northern kingdom of Israel, after it had, it had split, they started making these these golden calves with Jeroboam and the 10 northern tribes, how they separated themselves from God's temple in Jerusalem and began kind of repeating the sins of their ancestors in, in, the, in the desert. But it's so funny how, yeah, we as humans, we want something tangible, something visible. Yeah and familiar to us to worship God through. Yeah. I think, yeah. I Thank you. <laughs> sure. Well, so in the book, you talk a little bit about just the dynamics of, you know, for those of us not familiar with the Holy Land, familiar with Israel, you know, for some of us, we think it's just um, everybody there is Jewish. It only holds significance to Jewish people. And then every now and again, those of us who are Christians, we come in and, you know, it's the land of all the Jewish people. I'm the only Christian there, but, you know, everybody else is Jewish. (laughs) The the reality is there are sacred places, sacred sites for Mm -hmm. not just Jews and Christians, but also Muslims. Mm -hmm. So whose sites are they? Jews, Christians, or Muslims? (laughs) And how do those dynamics work? How, How is that kind of fleshed out? Um, it depends on who you ask. And of mm-hmm. course, that is, you know, the central problem there uh, right now. Um, the the two, the two, I guess, biggest sites of controversy are um, Jerusalem and Hebron. And those are, I mean, those are three cities that are holy in all, all three of the religions. And so, um, well, so Hebron is in depending on who you ask you, the occupied territories or the West Bank, um, lots of names for it. Um, so, you know, that is there basically under Palestinian control. And then, of course, you have Jerusalem, which is, you know, from a state perspective, controlled by Israel. Well, everybody has to work together. And I think we as humans don't have a great track record working well with people who are different from us. <laughs> mm. um, but 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 that is the situation there. So in in Jerusalem, um, technically, you know, everything is is owned, ultimately controlled by the state. Mm. But the different sites, um, the different sites are then controlled by the heads of religious groups. And so they have to be in conversation with the state about, you know, the very basic things like, like if you want to go up to um, the Dome of the Rock, right? they have to have a conversation about with Israel about, okay, we need to build a ramp, an ADA accessible ramp so visitors can get up there. Well, it's going to have to go over your, you know, over the Jews' Western wall. You know, how are we going to work this out? These convert, these very practical kind of conversations have to happen. Um, so, I mean, that, 
that's there. Or if, say, you look at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, um, again, technically, I guess it's it's on Israel's land. Um, it is taken care of by several factions of Christians, but the keys to the place are held by a Muslim family. You know, wow. so the, the solution for a lot of these sites has basically been collaboration between all parties. Um, right. And I mean, I... I think often the collaboration works because these individuals get to know each other on a personal level and have a relationship with one another. Um, but sadly, that isn't true for for the religions as a whole, and and that's where you where you run into problems. Yeah, interesting. So, as Christians, <laughs> we can use these sites, or we can use an understanding. I know um, Gabe and I have both the mission work in Uganda. And one of the things that you find in Uganda is a lot of Ugandan Muslims that may not actually know the Muslim faith too well. Mm -hmm. And Gabe, I don't know if you've ever done evangelism with uh, African Muslims that may not know it as, as well as uh, other people, maybe in the Middle East. But um, usually when I'm sharing the gospel with a, an African Muslim that may not know it well, I can talk to them about Jesus in a way that um, kind of makes that bridge and connects with them because Jesus in Islam is a prophet. Mm -hmm. And so <clears throat> connecting that common ground in order to have those conversations about the gospel is always super important. So I'm, I'm curious as to know, is there kind of that common ground commonality thing with some of these archeological sites, some of these sacred sites that um, we as Christians have with Jews and Muslims that we can kind of build that bridge, have those conversations? With the archaeological sites specifically, I'm going to say largely no, hmm. because sadly, uh, archaeology in its nature is destructive. And so what you see a lot of, um, especially in Israel, is um, you have scholars going out to a particular site and often, um, you know, the scholars have a particular interest. You know, they study the Iron Age or, 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 you know, they're Muslim, they study the Islamic period, you know, or something like that. And in order to get to deeper layers um, in a tell and to research those areas, it requires the destruction of what came before it. And so in a perfect world, you would go to this, you know, untouched tell and the Islamic scholars would start at the top and they would do all of their work. And then, you know, the Christians would come in and, you know, find the Byzantine churches and the crusader sites, you know, that may or may not be there. And, and the Christians would do their work and then the Jews would come in and then they would deal with, you know, Iron Age and below. Um, in a perfect world, that would happen. But this is not a perfect world and right. there isn't that much time. There isn't that much money. There isn't that much people. And sadly, there's not that much cooperation often mm -hmm. um, because people want to get to their stuff so that they can write their papers and learn about you know their particular interest. Um, so sadly, it, it's not playing out in a way that you know creates collaboration right but i think that's a wonderful goal for the future sure for, for more of that more of that to happen but i mean it, it it is a shame because you i mean for instance just you know looking at the dome of the rock area you know, the jews want to get in there and they want to get under that thing and you know look for evidence of of the second temple or of Solomon's temple ultimately is right. the big goal, right? Yeah. In order to do that, you have to destroy what's on top and efforts are made. Um, I mean, good effective efforts to, you know, engineer and hold up and support the, you know, the levels that are up above, but that 
still isn't as good as let's say strip archaeology if they could just you know strip mm-hmm. the layers off at the sure. top that's how you find absolutely everything um but so then you've got all these sacred sites that millions of tourists visit every single year and so yeah. it's kind of like you're not going to disrupt that you know exactly to, yeah. and i mean if that were your it, and i mean even even with um jewish hebrew israelite sites however you, however you want to say um uh, you know, Megiddo, you, maybe you get to an Iron Age level. And like at Megiddo, there are lots of places where they have, you know, restored uh, Solomon's stables, um, the things that the structures that Solomon built, and they've turned it into, you know, a park area that people can go and see. In reality, everybody knows that there are literally hundreds, maybe thousands of years of additional occupation below it. And we may never get to see that because we're so interested in preserving what's already been found. And hmm. so you, you have to have this balance or, and someone has to make the decision, you know, when do we stop excavating? When do we say this is enough? We've learned enough. Let's, let's honor and preserve this, Yeah, you know, and, and lose whatever may or may not be under it. Sure. Hmm. So it that, almost seems like, like archaeology is the intersection of like language, anthropology, history, and politics. Unfortunately, it's like an unfortunate yeah. element of it. Like you're and, and religion, you know, and that plays a huge role in it as well. That's the I, at the beginning we were talking about archaeology as a science. That that's very much the soft side mm-hmm. of archaeology, and and it archaeology is a balance I would say between art and science. I mean, mm-hmm. you you have to you have to make judgment calls, and yeah. it's. I mean, they're judgment calls. Not everybody's going to agree with everything that's done. It's impossible in this world. So, Amanda, for someone who is wanting to travel to Israel, maybe for the first or second time or, or whatever, and they're wanting to get their hands dirty and do something as a just you know, you know just a historian, amateur historian, they just love the Bible, they love mm-hmm. biblical history, and they want to get their hands on some kind of excavational dig as a volunteer, where would you recommend they start with that process? The easiest place um, is there's a wonderful popular magazine called Biblical Archaeology Review. Mm-hmm. Um, for for the casual archaeology lover, that is a great place to start. It's it's full color. Um, it tends to have you know pretty up-to-the-minute news about things. And every January, their issue is devoted to digs. Almost mm-hmm. the entire thing is you know different universities, you know, advertising, Come dig with us. And they will tell you about the sites, tell you, you know, what time period you're going to be digging, who's running it, and most importantly, how much it's going to cost. Um, so, I mean, I'm going to say if you're going to go out for a season after airfare, although, I mean... This is a difficult thing to talk about yeah. right now. Yeah, Airfares, yeah. you know, <laughs> up in the air, huh? Um, but I mean, you're gonna. It's gonna cost probably between three and four thousand dollars to mm-hmm. for a person to volunteer their time. That's why I say mm-hmm. archaeology is an expensive hobby. Um, but you got to get out there, and then you'll have to pay for your sustenance and, and all that, all that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. that'll get you, you know, three to six weeks working on an archaeological site. First time out, um, people might want to look at doing just um, a three week dig. Doing not not doing a full season um, because it's it may not be what you expect. It's incredibly physically demanding. Um, you're going to be in a squatting position most of the time, and when you're not because it's best archaeological practice. Don't lean on your knees. Don't sit on your bottom. You want to be um, bending over or squatting to do your work so that you're not disrupting the layers um, around you. You're either doing that or you're moving lots and lots of heavy dirt, and it's hot mm. and it's tiring and I've seen a lot, a lot of people go out there the first time. And I mean, you either love it or you hate it. 
That's it. I'm that person who loves it. I look like pig pen at the end of the day, completely covered <laughs> in, you know, I mean, you just touch me in dust, you know, plumes, plumes out from around me. And then there are the other people who maybe don't love it so much and they are just neat as pen at the end of the day. And I never understood how that happened, but <laughs> you know, so it's, it's, um, yeah, it, give, give it a, maybe a short trial period before you really, really plunge in unless you're just confident you're going to love it. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. That's cool that like if someone wants to get involved in this or if they're interested in just going and digging and getting their hands dirty, you can't, I mean, there's a way to just hop right in. You need, you don't, they'll, they will ask you to buy and bring your own little trowel. Um, and if you do figure out a way to put your name on it, because everyone's going to have the same trowel and you will lose it three or four times a day. Um, but it's, you don't need any experience at all. You'll get out there the first day and the people around you will teach you what you need to do, show you what to look for. It's very hands-on learning. And most of these digs, especially the ones featured in bar are run by universities. Um, if people are looking for, you know, college credit or something like that, that is often part of it. If you're not looking for that, though, a lot of these digs to make them more attractive to gain volunteers because they need volunteers. They will spend the weekends traveling to other places in Israel and, you know, spend a weekend in Jerusalem, spend a weekend going up and seeing Caesarea, you know, and so you'll actually get to do some travel while while you're digging on these sites, too. So work during the week, play on the weekend and, um, you know, really get a 360 view of Israel, modern and ancient. Yeah, that's cool. I think I know how I want to spend my vacation next summer. So, <laughs> I highly I recommend talk, it. I could talk my wife into it. Maybe it's just six weeks. You'll be fine. You'll be fine with all yeah, three kids. Yeah. It'll be just fine. <laughs> so, hey, to somebody that wants to be a better student of the Bible and wants to know the context and the background of the biblical text better, beyond uh, going and digging in the dirt. Maybe that's not practical for everybody, but what kind of study and research would you recommend that they do to kind of grow in this area? Um, so I would encourage everyone to, I mean, first, this is going to sound silly maybe, but start with your Bible. Actually read it. What? I know. Right. And, and not just the script, you know, not just the script, absolutely the scripture, but also like read the intro and mm-hmm. learn where your Bible came from, mm-hmm. who developed it, um, what decisions they're making about the text, and learn to understand, you know, I mean, your Bible will tell you if all the information is there. All those strange-looking footnotes at the bottom, they all mean something. Um, so, you know, start there. That is something that is in your home. And then as far as, I mean, that that is the ultimate authority. Um, but if you want to supplement that with something, I really encourage people to focus on exegetical type studies instead of topical studies um, because exegetical studies start with scripture and they are there to contextualize it for the reader and help the reader understand the the Bible in light of history and archaeology um, as opposed to, you know, more topical studies are all about helping you understand whatever the topic is in light of what the Bible says. Right. Um, and I'm personally not a fan of that. Um, I, I right, don't think right. that's going to be particularly helpful to, you know, to, to the, to the scholar that you are asking me about. Well, and you talked earlier about, we talked, we asked you right at the beginning of this, the difference between treasure hunting and archeology. span Yeah. And, and you said it's this idea of like, Hey, I'm looking for this thing. I'm going to go into the ground looking for it. I think a lot of people do that with their Bible, right? Yeah, absolutely. I've got a pet doctrine. I want to try to prove and so mm-hmm. I'm going to go to my Bible looking for this one thing. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times if we go looking for it, we can find it even if it's not there. 
Absolutely. That is literally the first thing that was said to me in my first archaeology class when I was an undergrad is when you get out into the field, if you look for it, you will find it. Yep. And um, and that is true of, of so many things in life, especially the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. To be a good student of Scripture, I think uh, it, it first starts with acknowledging that um, the Bible is for us, but it's not about us. Mm-hmm. And yes. while it is God's Word— and it is written for all people in all places at all times. The particular books that we're reading in the Bible were not written to people in 21st century America, right? So the book of Romans was written to believers in Rome at 57 right. AD. Hey, right. right? So yeah. to understand it, you've got to understand what did, what did Rome look like in 57 AD? Exactly. Right. And, and I yes. think sometimes that's a level of scholarship that we're not ready to put in as American believers. We just want things spoon fed to us mm-hmm. and we think, well, this must be about me, right? This is God's yeah. word. It has to be about me. And the, the reality is it's for you. Absolutely. It's God's yeah. written revelation to you and all people in all places and all times. But in order to truly appreciate it and understand it and see what it's saying, we've got to understand the context in which it's written. I think that's super important to do. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's true for the Bible. And I mean, I, I think it's just true for our lives in general, everything is is about relationship and spending time, and for us to get to know each other, for us to get to know Scripture, um, we have to we have to put in the time, mm-hmm. and um, it's it's really difficult to to get these important things spoon fed to us. It, it, you know, anything that yeah. that's worth doing is it, going to require a commitment of time, and I mean, I can think of no better way to spend your time than learning more about the Bible and the world that it came from. Yeah, digging through it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so many puns for that title. I love it. I've been able to stretch it so many different ways. Don't you love our, our episode title is Can You Dig It? I, just, I do. I came I do. up with that in about two seconds. And I was like, that is the cleverest thing I've ever written in my entire life. Can you dig it? Yeah. <laughs> when I was pitching the book to to the president at my publishing house, um, my <laughs> my editor was in there with me and we was like, we're going to call it the biblical archaeologist digs Israel. And he was like, you know, okay, yeah, that's a good title. And we move on. And like a few minutes later, he kind of leaned back and he went, Oh, <laughs> digs Israel. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> like, yeah, there you go. <laughs> there it is. There's the light bulb. So many different things. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, Amanda, thank you so much. This has been awesome. This has been so informative, so helpful. And it's been fun. <laughs> yeah, your your book is really really good too. I don't know why I'm holding up to the camera because nobody can see it listening to this, but you can find Amanda's <laughs> it <feels> book. Right, <laughs> it just feels right. I don't know why. Yeah, you can find the redheaded archaeologist digs Israel on Amazon or anywhere books are sold, and you can yep. find her podcast, the Red Haired Archaeologist, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you find your podcasts. So, thank you. Yep. This has been awesome. Thank you guys for having a non-bearded lady <laughs> in the house. Well, next time you're on, you got to work on that. So we'll, we'll figure yes. it out. Yeah. Yes, I'll do my best. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys. Thanks. Well, thanks for listening. That's our show. If you like what you heard, make sure to give us a share, leave us a review, or send us an email at beardsandbiblepodcast at gmail.com.